Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hatch Assad, and with me, as always, is my good friend and fellow automotive journalist, Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human listeners. I didn't articulate that well. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human listeners? Thanks, Ben. Um, I will reiterate, probably for the only time this podcast, (laughs) Ben and I are a pair of automotive journalists. We're also uh, um, good friends, and you can find our work all over the internet. Ben, tell them where they can find your work. You can find my work at Motor Trend, at Car and Driver, at Driving Line, and at Inside Hook. And you can find my work um, on the internet and in person with a magazine. You can find it on <laughs> Wait New a Hope. Yeah, in person. <laughs> yeah, I mean, physically hold my work without printing it out like I do for my parents. Okay, I was just curious. Like online isn't in person. Like you're a- accessing it through some kind of I don't know VR system or something. Well, I mean, isn't everything virtual reality these days? Even it's if you're not wearing a headset, it's definitely very meta. Yes. Did I say where I can find my work? No, I interrupted. Did you interrupt you. too much? You were well, talking about you were talking really matter, about in person. <laughs> no one, no one comes to the podcast to find my work later. Um, but Ben, we've got some cars and trucks to talk about this week, which is par for the course, I think. I'm totally thrown off by the fact that I don't know where to find your work in person at the newsstands. And what would I pick up if I was at the newsstand? You would pick up a car and driver or okay. a nouveau magazine. There you go. And you'll flip through them and you'll find my name eventually, I think. Towards the front, Uh, towards the back, towards the middle. Just got to look for it. Just scroll. Pay for the magazine, please. (laughs) Don't just scroll (laughs) through it and be like, that's my guy. (laughs) And then like throw it in the air and run away. (laughs) You always have to create a diversion when you're running away from a newsstand. You can't just – because those people are fast. They are very fit. If you work at a newsstand, the first thing they ask you is, are you willing to run someone down over a $5 magazine? And you have to say yes or you don't get the job. It's the number one. It's the first question, first step, first step of even, uh, of being hired. Even if the clerk is deceptively elderly, they will yeah, definitely fast. They will definitely end you. <laughs> I love that though. You got to have dedication for you know news and content. It's true to face the elements like that. Yeah, I have a weird story to tell you. I was in an airport in Germany one time in Frankfurt, and uh, I was taking photos. I was at a newsstand. This oh, yeah. This is why I remember yeah. this. And I was taking photos of some amusing gum that I had seen, like it had unusual names. And the clerk at the store flipped out at me and told me it was illegal to take photos of gum in Germany and that I would be arrested if I didn't stop. If anyone listening is in Germany and can back this up, is a lawyer or perhaps has been arrested for photographing candy, um, I would love to hear from you because I have never verified whether that's true or not. I looked it up. I can't figure it out. Yeah. And I, in the moment, I mean, I argued with them. I'm like, hey, we're in a public place. Not only that, it's an extremely controlled public place. With I didn't just walk in off the street. I had to go. Somebody searched me before I got here and started yeah. taking these photos. So it was odd. Did I they took make the you photos. delete the photos? Well, how is he going to do that? But it wasn't. Oh, yeah. Haven't you ever seen these people who like delete them? I'm watching. Well, I mean, unless he's going to come over the counter and like put me in a headlock, I feel like. Hey, most newsstands are ready. Are ready for that. That's true. I, in in that situation, I just left the newsstand. It seemed like the best way to de-escalate what was a truly unusual encounter. Um, but he was specific about how in Germany that was illegal. So I don't, you know, when someone is that specific, I feel like I, it's on me to figure out whether that's true or not. That's true. The law, the onus is always on how much you know the law uh, in a particular uh, in a particular part of the world. Not that the law would protect me in that situation. No, it wouldn't. You're too late. Yeah. Um, Ben, can I talk about some, can I talk about what I've been driving lately? I would love to. So as you know, I've been running my way through the Honda lineup, um, all of the underloved vehicles from the pilot to the Odyssey to today we've got the Passport. Um, and not only that, but the Honda, the 2023 Honda Passport Trail Sport, which we mentioned last time is one of the few vehicles that has the name Sport in it twice. Um, and I even went and I picked up a new Passport, like a physical item that i use to travel the world do in they, my pa- in the passport do they build the honda passport Trailsport for export sammy or is it just north american market <laughs> i didn't even think of that that's a great question uh i assume it is no that's a bad assumption to make actually i was thinking that it should be available all over the world but maybe not i think it seems like a very north american vehicle right like the best way to describe the passport is that it is a 
shortened, stubby version of the pilot, right? Kind of like and if more... they chopped the bed off of a ridgeline and then didn't add anything. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. It seems a bit bigger than, it, than that would be. Um, as far as I can tell, I think this is a very North American vehicle. North America oriented vehicle built in um, in America as well. And so it shares the same platform as the pilot, the Ridgeline, the Odyssey, and believe it or not, the Acura MDX. Oh, yeah, that that those are some good bones to to carry over. Right. Sure. I mean, sure. (laughs) (laughs) What's the matter? It's just weird because there's no Acura version of the Passport, right? I just said the MDX. But the MDX, I thought, was the version of the pilot. Yeah, but it's not. It's something in between, I think, the pilot and the Okay, so is the MDX in between the passport and the pilot? Maybe. We'll never know for sure. We'll never really know for sure. And I also think it's worth mentioning that um, this is – you're going to laugh probably, but the MDX uses something called super handling all-wheel drive or shod. And um, the – Pilot and pa- the pilot and passport use something called <laughs> special, IVPM4. Special hardcore all-wheel drive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. what, what, is, what is the passport one called? Intelli- intelligent Variable Torque Management and then 4 at the end. So I have a question. Yeah. Has there ever been a company that has advertised a non-intelligent all-wheel drive system? Yeah, stupid all-wheel drive. I'm pretty Dumbed sure down that all-wheel drive? I actually would suggest that, that Subaru... Just calls their all-wheel drive system symmetrical all-wheel drive? Yeah. I think if you have a mechanical all-wheel drive system, it doesn't get the intelligent moniker, right? Yeah. So if it's just like a mechanical split. But it's never advertised that way. It's like the little secret. It's Everything else is intelligent because a computer is somehow involved, I guess. Um, the Passport is a, is a fun car to talk about, in my opinion, because of its funny dimensions um, and the fact that it just looks like an, un, an underbaked like pilot at times, but I actually really like the passport because it tries to produce more of a personality than I think the pilot has. Now the pilot is kind of like a, look, it's like a lifted odyssey at times. It just doesn't, uh, until you get to this new generation one that looks a little bit more boxier and and rugged and bolder. um, I think there are times when you can look at the, the pilot and say, you know, where, where's the interesting element of this vehicle. And then I think when you look at the passport in relation, it already has like a little bit of a lift. It 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 seems like it's ready to to go off road, um, and and doesn't seem like elongated or and doesn't have a bubbly design language like the the old passport, uh, uh, the old pilot has or the the Odyssey, the related Odyssey has. So I think the way you described it in saying that it's like a ridgeline without the bed, I actually think that's way closer to describing to anyone who has ever seen a, a ridgeline before. Um, would understand it. Now, is it important, though, that the pilot has a personality? I mean, we talked about the pilot at length recently, so I don't think we really need to dig too deep into it, but... Yeah, you, you for sure. Is, you, so you think it's important for both the pilot and the passport to have a personality? To have distinct personalities away from each other. And do you I think, think that, that they do? Important. I do think that they're getting, they're getting there. Okay. Um, I actually think that the pilot is adopting the passport's personality. It's trying to... The, the new pilot is trying to be more rugged and tough, which is something that the Passport was able to do um, as soon as last year when it got, um, or 2021 when it got a, re- uh, a, a facelift or a refresh that gave it that like bigger grill and changed the headlight design and added like some, you know, this trail sport model that I'm driving, which is more off-road oriented. Now, here's the thing about the Passport's personality. I can't recall if I've ever driven one. I don't think you've driven one either. I mean, I've driven numerous pilots, but yeah. as the Passport itself, like, it's almost like I, I've, I've had them booked and then for whatever reason, they've disappeared from my booking list and I just didn't get behind the wheel. But it doesn't make enough of an impact on me for me to know whether I have or not. It feels kind of like the Venza of the Honda lineup, but I know it's not. So I need you to explain me why it's not. What do you mean by the, the new Venza of the of Yes, the, the new lineup. Venza of the, of, of the Toyota lineup. So, so, which, so like, which is to say that it has no significant impact on you or your it just kind of feels like a a, fla- a floor filler so is that mm-hmm. true with the passport or not is this something that they're like okay we can make a shorter pilot we're gonna do that we're not sure why and here you go like is that how it comes across or like do you think this is a vehicle that actually mm-hmm. it's competitive against whatever set of vehicles honda thought they were competing with i think when it first came out in 2018 it felt a little um 
and, or 2019, it felt a little like that. Just it was filling some white space, and they could do it really easily by by chopping out the taking out the third row of the of the pilot. I think once you've added this this trail sport um, trim level that they that they did in 2022, um, now they're they're giving it more and more personality and individuality. I honestly don't think there should be other trim levels of the passport. Um, I think this trail sport should be the base the base level of the vehicle. Um, and the the things in particular that trail sport has um, include some special like uh, badging on the on the inside and outside you know they have orange trim and piping on the seats it has the um oh i had them all here one minute it has the uh, a different set of tires now i hate the way to describe this tires honda is very vague because i assume different markets or different locations they might have different tires but these are you know rugged all season style uh, a rugged style all seasons. Rugged style so, all seasons. They're not I, quite. They're not quite AT tires. I don't think. But so they, is, what are they again? They're called Firestone Discover. Something Disco- like Firestone Discover. I don't know, but it's funny because yeah. what people I think don't understand is you're reading exactly how Honda advertises these tires yeah. on, on the build build page. It's rugged yes. all seasons, and like no rugged, rugged style, rugged all, style seasons. all seasons. It's like and it's funny because like every, all the other models they just have all seasons. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. I find that very amusing. Um, it is as you pointed out a way for them to offer a different tire for every market. I guess if they wanted to, mm-hmm. but uh, what makes me wonder though is if you bought like say where i live you have to have winter tires in the winter it's the law so if you buy a passport in the winter it has to have winter tires driving up the lot or you can't get it registered so do the rugged style all seasons come in the trunk so i can install them later or do i get a a voucher that entitles me to one set of rugged style all seasons and then i can go anywhere in the world and let them interpret what that might mean (laughs) i'm not Convoluted. Um, I will say that these ones, in particular, um, have a meaty, meaty sidewall. Um, while the EXL and Elite versions of the of the Passport have um, twenty inch tires, these ones are eighteen with a sixty a sixty um, ratio. What do you even call it? Sixty ratio sidewall. So it does have a lot of um, of rubber, and I really like that because it impacts the. To me, it impacts the road quality, the the ride quality on the road, even during this post-winter or mid-winter pothole road riding season where I, I actually feel quite comfortable in this vehicle. Yeah, it's, I mean, the fact that they moved away from a large wheel to a smaller wheel immediately makes it more serious for anyone who was considering putting that rugged style to, te- to the test somewhere. Yeah, um, but it's it's just it's here. How sad is it, Sammy, that we live in a world now where like the move to the <laughs> off road version of the vehicle <laughs> makes makes yeah. it more comfortable to drive? Yeah. Now, unlike the um, unlike the pilot trail sport, the passport trail sport doesn't have <laughs> as yes. I'm sorry, you just keep saying port and port, and it's hilarious to me <laughs> yeah. every time. Um, the 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 passport trail sport doesn't have some of the. <laughs> We'll get through this. <laughs> Some of the additional ground clearance or anything. The Passport in particular already has a pretty decent um, ground clearance of 8.1 inches. So that's which less I than think... every stock Subaru that's not a sedan. <laughs> yeah, which okay, is 8.6. Just, just 8.7. Just pointed that out there. Yeah. The special edition off-road SUV has less clearance than a bone stock base Forester. I think that must be um, because, like, the overhangs are definitely more than, than 8.6. 8.1 inches, right? Like, it's got to be something under the body that's that's stopping this from being um, larger. And the approach and departure, departure angles are the same across the board, tw- 21.1 and 24.3. So basically what you're getting with this Passport Trail Sport currently <laughs> is a some, some all-season, I mean, some rugged-style rugged style. all-seasons. And some leather trimming in your in your cabin. So I'm, How much I'm a little you for it? Uh, twenty five hundred. Uh, I mean, that's a set of tires, I guess. You know, yeah. I don't know. I don't it's even not know what a to huge say. Jump, right? Does it look different though? Yeah, it looks different. I you also get like a different look to the skid plates um, and garnishes around the the vehicle. So I think that adds some some element to it. Let me make sure. So I'm not I'm not making it up. Yeah, you get a different. Uh, the skid plates are a little bit different. Okay. So um, additionally. 
under the under the hood of this card is a 280 horsepower 3.5 liter V6. This is not the new one that's found in the pilot, so it has VTEC. When you step into it, it does make that wild noise that we associate with with VTEC, um, and it works really nicely. It's it's attached to a nine-speed automatic transmission. I actually haven't had very many issues with this powertrain, with the only exception being a slightly longer um, reignition during the auto start stop. Uh, and I think I mentioned this in the Odyssey. Yeah, you did. Okay. So I'm, I'm not crazy. It definitely is happening again with the Passport. It, sometimes it feels like it, it chugs. Um, it turns over a bit, a bit too long. Um... It's not like it's hang. It's like holding me up at the at the stoplight, though. Should I really mention that? Maybe I should never mention things. You've already mentioned it, and it's too now late. It's too People late. are turning off the podcast. They're like, Sammy needs to get over his obsession with start stop. That's very true. Um, and I think that the fuel economy of this vehicle could also be improved. It's rated for twenty one miles per gallon combined. I think you can get you can easily get worse than that. Like without without thinking about it. Um, I don't know if I'm in love with that fuel economy. So the the bottom line is, yes. Would you buy this over any other SUV at its price point and size? So this currently costs forty. What did I say? Forty three, forty three, forty three thousand. Um, look, if you want an off road oriented SUV, it's going to be the Wrangler or the um, Bronco, and both of those come with some compromises in terms of on road or, or, or the dreaded Forerunner. <laughs> Or the Forerunner, and those come maybe not the Forerunner in terms of compromise, but the other two come with some compromise in terms of um, on-road capability or feel. But uh, and some people have also mentioned to us that they're not the most uh, reliable vehicles, um, with the exception of the Forerunner. That's pretty much its its claim well, to the, fame. The Forerunner is reliable. The Forerunner is reliable because they've been working on that powertrain now for fifteen years. Yeah, <laughs> it hasn't changed. So they've. They've got all the bugs figured out, I think. Do you know, like, the, like we're talking the trail sport, has, this Passport has nearly twice the gears as the as the, um, as the Forerunner? Yeah. That's yeah. wild. But, I mean, it's not a real off-road SUV. We've already established it's just tires. So it's, yeah. it's like I'm kind of thinking if you were to expand your purview to similarly sized and price, not necessarily so attitude. let's say something like the um, Outback. And the Jeep, um, not Wrangler, Grand Cherokee? I don't know if the Grand Cherokee at that price is probably not that feature-filled, but... Mm. um, But I think, you know, I think it actually does feel a little bit... Look, the, the, the recent version of the Subaru Outback has changed a little bit and feels a little... I've said this, it feels a little less off road oriented. But you gotta get the wilderness. You have to get the wilderness to get that like outbacky feel again, and I feel like this is the same issue with the passport um, that they're able to to do. I also need to to say those there's something there's sometimes there's a lot of people who get an SUV because they want the additional um, they want to sit up high, they want to see ahead of traffic or something like that, and you definitely get that feeling in the passport, and I don't think you get that exact same feeling in an outback, which sometimes feels. Like, um, just like a car sometimes. Even though it has more ground clearance than the... Yes. But, you know, it's it's funny because if everyone's in an SUV, then you can't look over any traffic. That's right. That's and very true. This is something I've noticed more and more. Just And now we need to get larger SUVs, and that's why... It's um, a, and one day they'll build a board with a nail in it big enough to destroy <laughs> us all. Um, so, any, any, any last thoughts before we segue into, uh, into the next vehicle we're going to yeah. discuss? Yeah. If you like interiors, don't look at the Passport's interior. Like Ooh. it is, it is a bland, boring, uninspired interior, and That's harsh. Um, it is just, it just feels like they. I mean, it's it's well built. So Honda skills like interior they day. They just they phoned it in in terms of design. Um, it just feels. I mentioned this to you. It feels like one of those uh, large print remote controls that they would give to like your grandparents to help them figure out how to use the, the, the TV. Wow. And it's just like, everything is right where you need it to be. That's good. But there's just zero differentiation between some buttons. Um, there's no sort of like pizzazz or wow to this thing. Nothing really makes you go, Oh wow. They really like thought about how special this car might be. Right. <laughs> um, I think sometimes we look for um, attention to detail and we also look for, um, the feeling that 
a car can bring you in terms of wow i'm stuttering here in terms of making the car, making the drive feel like an occasion a special occasion or something and this does not have the cabin for that at all it just feels kind of utilitarian um so that's my those are my my sort of criticisms of the vehicle i think they can definitely improve it i think with the current or, or the new um pilot that the the new passport or a passport oriented on the pilot will be very strong will be a nice upgrade so you were talking about the the outback a couple you mentioned the outback as as a strong comparator to this vehicle so i the vehicle that i want to talk about today is also linked to the outback and it's linked to the outback in the fact that it's linked to the outback is a big part of what i want to talk about so i spent some time with the subaru legacy sedan which a very, very long time ago, back in the 1990s, is the four-door car that created the crossover phenomenon in North America for the most part. Um, They created the Outback wagon, which was a a lifted version, barely lifted, plastic-clad version of the Legacy wagon. And then they also made a a crossover sedan version, or the Outback sedan, which is just a lifted and cladded version of the four-door. SUS, sports utility sedan. So... It, it in a lot of ways, this vehicle is the progenitor of the market that we see today because the the Outback was such a crucial kind of inflection point for SUVs in North America. But flash, flash forward, you really, you really like still feel, but you still feel that way. Like when we when we think back, do you think the legacy will really? I think the leg. This is going to sound crazy. I think the legacy's history is going to be washed away. I don't know if we're going to remember it this way. Why do you say that? I don't know. I feel like the I think when you finish this segment, we're gonna we're gonna finish that com- that conversation. Sorry. Okay. Well, what, what I'm saying is the Outback is, I think, most certainly the vehicle that introduced North America to crossovers. Okay. Very closely followed by Volvo with the cross country, um, and when you had those two vehicles on the crossover side that were joined by vehicles like the M Class, uh, Mercedes Benz. And the explore, popularity of the Ford Explorer, which just took mm-hmm. off at the end of that decade, the, I think those are the, the kind of the quadrangle of vehicles that pushed people out of wagons, vans, and sedans into crossovers. Uh, and now, okay. th- thirty years later, the legacy is still around, um, barely. And it's that's it's, my point. But but where? Okay, so <laughs> let me make my point here because I okay. think you're going to try to steal my point from I'm me. I'm going to steal your point. Um, Whereas once upon a time the legacy felt like the launching pad for the Outback, today it just kind of feels like a lesser Outback. It's like you go into the showroom and there's a legacy there and there's an Outback there. And for yeah. the life of me, I can't understand why anyone would pick the legacy over the Outback. And if you look at the way sales are going, seven times as many people buy the Outback as the legacy. And I think it's very easy to to look at that and write it off as saying, well, you know, crossovers and SUVs are just more popular now. So of course, of course, the crossover version of this platform is going to be more popular. But I think right. it goes deeper than that because having driven the Subaru Legacy, and, and this is the this is a refresh generation of the vehicle. It's riding on the new platform that the current Outback is riding on. I didn't necessarily feel this way before, but after driving the 2023 model, which has seen the same updates that um, I talked about. Did we talk about the Outback recently or did, did yeah. we skip that? segment i can't remember wilderness i think we definitely talked about no not wilderness that the one the one that i had a few weeks ago i, I don't think we talked about it on the program. oh no okay it, it doesn't matter all i'm saying is Hold i've driven them i've driven them both back to back very recently okay. and there's nothing about the legacy that compels anyone to ch- make it their first choice like it's it's somewhat lighter than the outback but it doesn't drive any sportier for being a sedan and for being lower to the ground or i don't even know if it's lower to the ground for it's certainly lower to the ground than the wilderness, but than a standard outback, I'm not yeah. sure. Um, it's not any quicker, really. Uh, it doesn't. It feels completely competent in every way, but you you kind of just look behind you while you're driving it, and you you see the the closed cabin of the sedan, and you're like, this just feels wasted. Like, I I left so much behind on the counter at Subaru, walking out with this Legacy instead of the Outback, and I'm not being in terms of practicality and utility, and I'm not being compensated with that by way of like a special driving experience or something fun about it. You know, it's it's a carbon copy of a much more useful vehicle with no distinguishing characteristics. And in fact, this is one of the few vehicles I've driven in the last couple of years where people actively told me how bland the design looked. <laughs> and I was, I mean... And I think that's really painful because I think a lot of people attach 
um, extra your, your personality or, or driver's personality or an owner's personality to the to the to the vehicle that they see you driving in. And I think that's first of all, I think that's crazy, but I think people <laughs> do that anyways. And to have a vehicle um, as bland or boring, especially in terms of design, as the legacy, people noticing that. That's tough. That's a tough pill to swallow. <laughs> yeah. So I don't have a ton to say about the legacy other than this, because I feel like we've talked about the Outback so many times on the program. We don't need to go over everything about. And I drove the this is the, you know, the Ne Plus Ultra legacy. It's the Touring XT. So okay. it has the, the 200 and whatever horsepower, 260, I guess, 260 horsepower turbo four. Same as the Outback. It feels perfectly fine. It has the CVT that's much better with the turbo. Um, it has a decent interior. And aside from that, it's like every time I was driving it, I just couldn't, I think that there are other companies, Sammy, like Toyota. And if you look back, yeah, once upon a time, okay, keep looking. We're not going to go as far back as the nineties this time, but we're going to go to the two (laughs) thousands. Remember when Toyota came out with the first Venza and it was based on the Camry. It was basically a Camry wagon on stilts. And remember when Honda came out with the cross tour. Which was an Accord wagon. We love the the cross tour. So those two vehicles were very similar to their sedan counterparts. Right. And flash forward, I guess, 15 years later, and you can't look in a showroom and really find examples of that anymore. Almost every company has really put distance between their best-selling sedans and their best-selling crossovers. Like the best-selling Camry has nothing to do with the RAV4. And the, the, the current Venza has nothing to do with the Camry either. It's basically the RAV4 platform. The Accord Cross Tour is totally gone, and all of all of Honda's SUVs, like we were just talking about the Pilot, we we're just talking about the Passport. They have nothing to do with the Accord, at least in terms of styling. Or you wouldn't get into one and the other and and make the connection, right? Yeah. So I think nowadays the I mean, if you want to make those connections, I think the HRV and the Civic are now much closer. I mean, they used to the HRV used to be based on the Fit, and now it seems like it's based on the Civic. Rather but styling-wise, you don't look at them and, and go like, "Oh, that's just a a wagon version of the yeah, Civic." Design design language has has evolved throughout the automotive industry, and I don't think it has so much at Subaru. Yeah, so I would say Subaru <laughs> Subaru is the one of the few companies that's still not doing this. The other one would be Volvo because mm-hmm. you can still get sort of lifted versions of their wagons. They sell wagons, sedans, and crossovers that are very connected. So they're kind they, of... Don't they also sell something called a cross country? Yes, that's what I'm saying. So they have crossover oh, okay. versions of their wagons. They also have SUVs, and they also have sedans. And if you look at them side by side, they're very, very similar. Mazda, you and I had talked about how Mazda's kind of like that. With I feel like the design language of their SUVs and their sedans are close. But, but Mazda has almost no sedans left at this or point. Or whatever you want to call them, hatchbacks. Yeah. Um, so those would be but two... But even then, it's just the Mazda 3, right? Those would be two companies, and they're they're small companies. They're small players yeah. in the industry. Uh, all yeah. the big all the big companies, Ford, GM, Chrysler, none, none of these companies are following this playbook anymore. And and Subaru, I think, is kind of... if if Even going beyond the legacy, the Crosstrek is essentially an Impreza hatchback. There's there's no real differences there. So they're they're kind of, I don't know, playing out the string with the legacy. Like, why is it still in showrooms? They sell 20,000 examples a year. Is that really that important to their bottom line? I mean, I I love to hear the sales of this. 20,000 is actually half as much as the the Passport we just mentioned. So it is um, a fairly limited number because I don't think many people buy the the Passport in, in relation the thing that I, I think is worth mentioning, it's not fair. Like, I think it's not fair to be like, of course, this, the sedan version of of the related, you know, if you can get a sedan or a hat, or a, an SUV based on that sedan, the SUV will always be more practical, um, will feel a little bit more value for the money. But the legacy is $4,000 cheaper. It is a little bit more fuel efficient from what I can gather. Um, but that's it. That's it. There's, yeah. there's nothing else. It's like if you drive but a Camry, everything else, but everything else is is at parity, I think, in terms of interior equipment, in terms of features. So, you know, four thousand dollars might be a lot to some people. I also understand that when it comes to sedans and hatchbacks, the legacy is among the cheapest uh, in terms of ba- yeah, at, at its base spec, which I think is really impressive considering it's not a compact. But if you were to drive an Accord and you were to drive a Pilot back to back, the Accord would yeah. be much more pleasant to drive. It oh, would handle yes. it would handle much better. Yeah, that is not the case with the Legacy. If you drive it back to back with its more popular crossover sibling, 
that there's no advantage to owning the legacy except for the price difference that you just mentioned. You know, it's it even you know you look at Kia. There aren't many companies making sedans, right? There's Kia yeah. has the K5 in this class. Do they still make the K5? Yes, they do. I believe. Wow. There's the Nissan, Nissan Altima. Those are all wheel. Those both of those are available with all wheel drive. Mm-hmm. Um, you, can you get an all wheel drive Camry these days? Yep. Okay. So you have that. I don't think you can get an all-wheel drive Accord. It's a very and of all of the cars you just mentioned. I don't think the Legacy is competitive in terms of drive, in terms of like handling and, and engagement. No, right? exactly. So it, and again, that's the main reason you would get. I mean, that's the main reason enthusiasts would get a Legacy over those ones. So it's 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 odd to me that this vehicle exists. I, I, think I it's assume just a budget play, maybe, but but at the same time, you might as well like I. Can the size difference, especially practical, like cargo wise, wouldn't like say a hatchback version of the Impreza do the trick? No, it's much smaller. It's much. It's smaller also inside. way less powerful. So. Yeah, and not not nearly as pleasant to drive. Like it's. Okay. I, I'm not a big fan of the Impreza. Um, uh, Subaru's made so many compromises to get fuel mileage mm-hmm. with their with their all wheel drive systems that it's it's just not really great experience overall Um, and you don't you don't really notice that when you have the turbocharged version of the legacy Uh, so that's another thing too is like if you if we're talking about how there's a value play for the legacy but that value play means the non-turbo engine (laughs) i mean stay away it's just not (laughs) it's not something you want to do anyway i mean it's also not fair when you like the legacy you can already feel is on the back burner because not the back burner it's 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 a. It feels like it's just underloved by the automaker itself. Well, it's being Especially given. It's exactly about, this. But no, it's it's being given the same attention as the Outback. It has the same refresh that just but the Outback only just five got. trims compared to like I don't know forty Outbacks. Like you know what I mean? I guess, but it, it still has the same feature set. It's it's essentially identical from the the you know the trunk forward. But what I mean to say is that there's many more trim levels. There are actually nine trim levels of the Outback. There are. Four of them with the turbocharged engine compared to two in the Legacy. Um, I mean, it tops out at under thirty-eight thousand, while the while the Touring XT version of the of the Outback tops out at forty-two-ish. So, I don't know. Like, feature-wise, you were at par. Um, fuel economy and pricing is uh, in favor of the of the Legacy, but you have more options when it comes to the Outback. Sure, because they they can't keep pushing the price up of the Legacy. I would assume. Yeah. Otherwise, no one would buy it whatsoever. I mean, yeah. maybe the only reason they sell Legacies is because people come looking for Outbacks and can't afford them. I mean, it, is that twenty thousand sales a year? I don't know. Maybe. Um, I also want to talk to you about something that you mentioned to me when you were driving the Legacy, which was the infotainment system. Now, you, as far as I understand, you don't use Android Auto that often. I use it all the time now. Oh, you do it all the time now. Yeah, I changed it. Totally flipped the script. Wow, that changed in the span of a year. Well, I use Android Auto all the time as well, and I recently got into a vehicle with an updated version of Android Auto, and you did too, and we noticed some kind of weird things about it, right? Yeah, so I I didn't know this was because it was updated. I thought it was just some Subaru trickery, but... They they've split the screen up into three sections now, and this on the homepage of of Android Auto. Yeah. And at the bottom left, I had like a blank, essentially a blank feature. It was like it's it's looked like it was showing me degrees of like a temperature or something, but it was just you know dashes instead of characters. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that there's some kind of weather feature you have to turn on on the Android Auto system itself in order to see that. And I didn't have that turned on. But in my mind, it's like, if I don't have a feature turned on, I don't want to see it. I don't want to see a blank thing, you know? Yeah, and, a blank widget, it looks ridiculous. It and, should not, like, it should be cleverer than that. And and not only does it look ridiculous, but first of all, why and do I need a weather yeah. widget on a car? I'm already outside driving. I know what the weather is like. And if I needed temperature, every modern car tells you what temperature it is on the dashboard somewhere. And then you don't to, need Google telling you? I don't need Google telling me or not telling me in this case and shaming <laughs> me for not understanding what was going on. I sent Sammy like a picture and I'm like, what do you think this is for? Because yeah. I hadn't, I, you know, I was coming out of another vehicle that had Android Auto that did not show this feature. Yeah. Anyway, the other thing about the Subaru that I found funny is at the top of the Android Auto screen or their infotainment screen, they have like a scrolling section that's separate from whatever Android Auto is doing. And one of the menu items you can choose there is like a weather forecast for, <laughs> I presume, the area you're in. I don't know. It doesn't tell you. So I have weather there. I have weather at the bottom and I have a temperature 
on the dashboard and I have windows in the car that let me see what's going on outside. <laughs> it just seemed like unnecessary information. You need to know what temperature and what conditions you're driving in. And that's Subaru. I mean, honestly, that's a Subaru thing. Really. <laughs> he made it seem so important. <laughs> <laughs> you have, you must have all wheel drive for a reason, right? Like, I guess so. No, but the problem with me, when I looked at this, you sh- you sent me this photo of the updated Android. It was, I think it was the first time I've ever seen this updated interface. And it was on this gorgeous 11, I think almost 12-inch screen that Subaru has. And it seemed kind of decently split up. I drove it in this Honda Passport with an 8-inch screen. Oh, man. And it was tiny. I, that, all of that information was really squished um, when it could have been, I think, presented a little bit better or given me the option to put specific widgets where I wanted them to be You can't put. do that, right? Like, you can't turn I off a widget. So. I, I don't think so. I want to try. I would love that. It's crazy because I, when you turn off weather in Android Auto, it just blanks the widget. It doesn't remove yeah, the widget. Instead of replacing it That is bad useful. UI. Um, and so I was really disappointed because, as you mentioned, I use Android Auto um, as often as I can. I've seen split-screen split versions of it on the wider... Um, infotainment screens out there but on this one i don't know i didn't like they just made a the the, the map screen a small square and they put these two widgets that i weren't i wasn't very happy with uh, on what the, the X, what's going on with that on yeah. the x3m that i had just previous to the legacy it had a really nice split screen for the android auto yeah um and it, it, it's i think they've actually added some functionality to it uh where i could do a lot more on the smaller screen than i used yeah. to be able to do yeah, which, yeah. which I really appreciated. So before you'd have to kind of move back and forth between maps. And, so and please don't update that one into this one. Because yeah, I, mean, I would that panic. Would, that would not be great. <laughs> I have a GV60 this week from Genesis and I haven't um, launched. It doesn't have wireless Android Auto. So I haven't plugged in yet to, to see how it displays. But I'm very curious. It's going to happen at some point. I think um, you're going to be disappointed. <laughs> there's one, one last thing I wanted to talk about this week. I had a really interesting interview with someone over, uh, I guess, a couple of weeks ago, working on a story about armored vehicles, Sammy. And what do you think of, what's the first thing that pops in your mind when someone says bulletproof car to you? Uh, Other than duck. <laughs> yeah. Um, a movie, maybe? What, what, what kind of cars do you typically consider being bulletproof? Obviously, like these big old rugged, like war zone kind of vehicles, practically tanks or AP, APVs, I guess. Okay, well... Um, I found out that the one of the most I spoke to uh, James Jamila and he works for the Armored Group, which is one of the biggest ballistic proofing companies in North America. They have worldwide operations. They have factories in the Middle East, in the United States, in Canada, South America, etc. Um, he told me that he gave me a list of the vehicles that show up the most often at his company to be armored, and he told me that GM, Ford, and Ram are the most popular domestic models. But on the Japanese side, it's the Camry and the Avalon (laughs) that are the most popular economical vehicles that end up getting armored. And uh, this is alongside stuff like, you know, they they still do stuff from Rolls-Royce and Bentley and like, you know, uh, German SUVs and whatnot. But they also do like Volkswagen Passats. It's not... It's not necessarily like all G-Wagons and Suburbans like you would normally think it is. And okay. I found that to be really surprising. Um, he, he, he basically brought me up to speed with the state of the art for the uh, bulletproofing industry. Okay. There's, there's this thing. There's a European classification standard called EN 1063, which is what they use to divide up how bullet resistant a vehicle is. And the for, for what they call they have this thing called cash in transit. And that's like the bread and butter of the oh, yeah. yeah that's like people who are picking up at an if they're bought, if they're getting you know at the bank they're picking up cash or at a retail location in their camry so yeah that's called a b4 level armoring that's just for like small pistols and whatnot mm-hmm. but for every passenger vehicle that shows up there and i don't mean like law enforcement i mean like individual private citizens they go to something called b6 and that will resist a 308 winchester rifle a 7.62 ak-47 round um and the next step above that is b7 which has protection against like a hardened armor piercing kind of round. And the way they build these cars is they created a 360 degree safety cell inside the car. So every vertical and horizontal service is essentially bulletproof. It's okay. they use hardened steel, they armor the fuel tank, they armor the IC, the ECU and they put run flat tires on the car and you get okay. one operable window, Sammy. <laughs> which one? Uh you get to choose. I'm assuming it's for the driver. Okay. Um Another thing I found out is that bulletproof cars are not blast proof. 
if you want okay. if you I want, suppose that makes sense. Yeah, if you want protection from a grenade or a rocket or something like that, you can have it, but it's like an a la carte option kind of deal. And uh there was uh, a whole bunch of other information he gave me. The, the 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 steel and glass that they buy to use in armoring, like they have to know that it works, right? You can't just buy steel, put it on a car and then find out later it someone didn't survive whatever was going to happen to them. So they buy all of their steel and glass in a single lot from a supplier. And each okay. lot is tested by the supplier before they get it. Okay. Okay. So it's, it's like, so it's like standardized. Almost. Yeah. It's standard. It's, it's batch controlled. And then they cool. have to, they have to stay within the gross vehicle weight rating of whatever vehicle they're working on. Really? Yes. Wow. That's gotta be the hardest part of this. It is a challenge. And I asked them about, How? well, I asked them about that. Um, he said that there's lighter and, and thicker composite materials that are out there that can be used, but they're not as cost effective. And mm-hmm. I didn't know this. Stuff like Kevlar has an expiration date. Interesting. And I if you if it's exposed to heat, cold, and moisture, like extreme, Which is what all cars are exposed to? Pretty much, yeah. So <laughs> they try not to use it. Uh, they'll do it if you want to do it. If you're willing to pay more to okay, have a Okay, but hold on. Like car. to me to – me, bulletproofing or armored vehicling or, or, or an armored vehicle is a no expense spared sort of thing, right? No, not if you're worried about If you're worried about your, 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 you know, safety of either yourself, your passengers, your cargo, I feel like you're worried you'd be willing to spend anything for that. Well, you would think so, but I think it's also a question of being realistic about what kind of a threat you're facing and um, having the budget to be able to do it. So, he talked about how companies like one of my questions was, you know, one operable window. If you're looking at a Rolls Royce customer and they're giving you a half million dollar car and they're saying, make this bulletproof. And then you hand them something back that I guess compromises their enjoyment of that vehicle because there's so many limitations that are imposed by armoring. How does that work? And he said, well, you know, sky's the limit if people really want to spend whatever they want to spend on a vehicle. And he pointed out that companies like, you know, Audi and BMW have in-house armoring where they will armor a vehicle on the same assembly line that it's built where they don't have to worry about, you know, how far a window goes down into a door or the shape of a door. But he says that's extremely expensive. And they're limiting their customers to basically government level stuff, like high end government level stuff. And for them... It's okay because it's low volume, but they get a lot of advertising out of it. It's like it's kind of like motorsports. Mm-hmm. It's it's a great way to build the brand, but most people can't afford that kind of armor. So the baseline price for Tag, the mm-hmm. the armor group, it's about 50 grand if you have a pickup truck to bring it up to that B6 level of resistance, which is like rifles and pistols. Um, if you have a sedan, it's about nine grand more. And then for European vehicles, which are harder to work with 67,000 for an SUV and 69,000 for a sedan. And, uh, that's on top of the price of the vehicle that you're bringing Mm. to them. So the price is not totally out of control. He also sells used previously owned armored cars. It's one of the few companies that does that for him. It's a question of not leaving any customer behind. He says, some people show up and they don't have time to wait. It takes like four months to get one of these built, like two months to build it, two months to wait in line kind of deal. And he's like, if you need a car tomorrow, I have an inventory. I have the largest inventory in North America. I can get you a car, but it's also less expensive. You can, you can spend like around a hundred grand for an armored SUV kind of deal. Interesting. but now, my thought process was when they armored these vehicles, they also – I thought that they added a ton of weight and they needed to change um, performance characteristics of, the, uh, characteristics of the vehicle to accommodate um, that extra weight, be it suspension or, or, or powertrain. There is – they will do suspension. There are some suspension upgrades that are included. Powertrain upgrades are there as an option. But that's why they stay within the gross vehicle weight because that's the safest – that's okay. the only real safe way to build a vehicle. The way he put it to me was – Instead of Ella swapping everything. <laughs> well, it's it's not even – I mean extra power is not going to get you out of your GVWR, right? Like for him, it's a question of if someone's in a bad situation, the best thing you can do is escape that situation. Yes. And if your vehicle is compromised to the point where it's no longer safe to drive because it's so heavy, you're not mm-hmm. going to be able to have the handling or the acceleration to get out of a bad situation. So it's like – the company is walking this fine line with every car they design in order to protect the people inside while also giving them the option to escape. Um, and I was talking to him about what his customers were like, and he was saying that it's such a huge, wide 
range of people. Like he says they do, they work with the UN, they work with the US State Department, they work with law enforcement. But at the other end, they work with executives who are worried about, you know, violence that they see in traffic on a regular basis in a major city. But they also work with what what he would term doomsday preppers, like people who have a bug out vehicle and they're worried that, you know, let's say where they live, the the rule of law is no longer in effect. There's a riot or something and they want to get their family out somewhere safe. And so they have this vehicle parked in the driveway, ready to go at any time. And that's where he brought up the idea of uh, GVWR again, because they're going to be loading people and like cargo, you know, supplies to escape are going to be inside that vehicle. You have to give them enough payload so that they can realistically use the vehicle, not just take it all up with armor. Um, And he also mentioned how for them, everything is covert. Like you would not be able to look at the armored vehicle and tell. He says that that's a very important thing to him. He says some of the customers, they want like push bars and off-road type stuff and like being able to jump a curb and whatnot. But like that's that's a choice that the buyer has to make. Like everything that they everything that they end up delivering, if you look you'd have to be an expert to look at the vehicle and tell okay. that it was armored. I think that so one of my you're gonna laugh at me now. I've actually this is my catchphrase this this podcast. I need to find a new thing to say it. But you got you gotta listen to me on this because I've understood that in when it comes to home security, a lot of people just put that chub sticker on their window and Problem solved. Nobody's gonna bust into your house anymore. I mean, you don't think that you don't think like a, an armored this vehicle is bulletproof is is enough for somebody to not waste a bullet? I mean, I don't know. Or how is many, that gonna be a, a challenge? I don't know who's looking at a sticker before they carjack you. I just yeah. I don't think that happens. I don't think that's realistic. Um, a vehicle theft or home theft is a much different, of less volatile situation. I guess is what I would say. It it's something where it's not as immediate. Uh, and also if you're taking, I guess, rifle fire from a distance, who knows? Like the, the, yeah. the thing is like, you have to feel one of the things I was trying to get from him was, you know, who feels the need for this kind of protection? Like this is not yeah. a cheap thing to do. And it's, it's for most people, it would seem like it's over the top, you know, but I guess there's a lot of people who, you know, he high net worth individuals, people who are, um, regularly transporting merchandise for their own company or payroll, for example, for their own company, or you, you have like, let's say you, you own a jewelry store or you own collectibles or something that could theoretically be robbed while it's in transit or um, the whole doomsday prepper crowd. But he, he was talking about uh, something interesting. And he was saying that like, you know, let's say you're at a gas station in the middle of the night and the gas station is beside a liquor store and it's two in the morning. And you get out to get gas. He's like, it's a very different situation than if you were there at noon. He's like, it, in, in some cities, it completely flips the script on what might be safe and what might not be. And I guess there are some people who have anxiety about that. And yeah. they want to feel safe in those situations. So there's a whole range of, I guess, people. It's a hefty price for that, solving that anxiety. Sure. It's a fear response, right? Like, yeah. it's, it's how afraid are you of where you're living? Um, and we talked about the fact that uh, economic disparities are creating situations where communities of very wealthy people are being pushed up against communities of people who are experiencing homelessness. Wow. And you have this this zone where these communities are interacting and sometimes those interactions turn violent or I guess sometimes people are afraid they're going to turn violent. So that's also driving people to um, purchase these vehicles. In fact, over the last three years, because of the pandemic and the unrest that has come with that, he mm-hmm. said that at his company, they have seen a huge surge in buyers. And he said it, what they're seeing now is people who were previously on the fence about buying an armored vehicle or had never even considered it are have, have tipped over into being like, you know what? I don't necessarily trust that I'm going to be safe where I'm living now because of you know how things have been going wherever they happen to be. So he, he said that there, there, there have been two major changes in the industry. The first was after the second Gulf War. They saw a very big surge of uh, around the world of people who wanted individual protection um, that, that were concerned about that. And, and the industry kind of shifted from protecting cash in transit to protecting individual people, whether they were government officials or just families or whatever. And he says the second surge in, or the second sea change kind of in the business has been the pandemic and unrest that's associated with that and driving more individual people into the armored car business. Wow. Now, you've written a whole story on this piece. Where can we find that? Uh, you can find it at Inside Hook. Uh, I'll put the link 
in as insidehook.com. I'll put the link in the show notes for this this particular episode. I really recommend reading this this piece thoroughly. Um, that at the top of the page of this uh, at the top of this article is a beautiful land cruiser. That's an armored land cruiser? Yes. Yeah. Wow. And you can't it tell looks, by looking it at looks, it. Yeah, it looks perfect, I guess. With the exception of whatever's going on in the windows, which I guess are like portholes. Well, that's the thing, right? Like if you don't have functional windows, I'm assuming yeah. that those are entrances. This this would seem to be something that you would have as a, if you were like an official right. or you were in a motorcade. Um, I'm assuming that the editors who chose these photos did so for their maximum visual impact. Because if you just show like <laughs> a normal looking Land Cruiser yeah. and you're like, trust us, it's armored. <laughs> you know, it's like... <laughs> It's not. It doesn't have as much of an impact in a story. That's a. It's a crazy business to me. Um, I mean, I, I understand the the use case of it now, and of course, and it's tough, man. Like preppers and and just violence. That's. I, I hate. You know, I I really don't like guns, and uh, this is a, this is an interesting subject. Well, we're, um, we're, we're about lucky. protecting ourselves from them. Uh, um, the person I spoke to, it, it, he's from Canada originally, and. He was contrasting the difference in uh, some of the markets that they're in compared to Canada, where there's uh, not a lot of street violence, not a lot of highway violence and those kinds of things. And Mm -hmm. he he was just saying, you know, like in Canada, we're lucky to be largely free from those worries. But there's parts of the world where that's not the case. Yeah, of course. And that's what these people are preparing Mm -hmm. for. Or at least it's they feel the need to have to prepare for this. And he talked about how he's delivered many, many of these vehicles personally. He's driven across various countries in them and... He says the sensation of safety you get while you're inside that vehicle, knowing that you're essentially impregnable <laughs> to any kind of attack, any kind of realistic attack that's going to happen. It, it really changes how you feel in the middle of the night in a city you're not familiar with or if you're pulling off the highway at 3 a.m. to do something. So it was, it was interesting to have that perspective. Yeah, that adds up. I think so. Cool. Um, what do you think? Anything else you want to talk about this week? No, I think I'm all chatted out. We're all done here? Unless you want to talk about passport, pilot sport, motorsport. Some more no, trail sport. Not anymore. There okay. should be a pilot sport, a passport, trail sport, uh, motorsport. I don't. I don't understand why not. That'd be a great. Sport that'd be a great fit. Accurate sport tech. Exactly. There you go. Um, if you want to get in touch with us on the podcast, I recommend that you. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us after listening to this podcast, I recommend that you go to our website, unnamedautomotivepodcast.com, and fill out the contact form that's there. You just fill it out, and it lands in our inbox. It's. Uh, it's pretty reliable, I will say. You can also reach out um, on social media. You can find myself on Twitter. I'm at Sammy underscore ha, like you're laughing. Or you can find Ben on Instagram. He's at Hunting Benjamin. When you go to our website, unnamedautomotivepodcast.com, you can see all of our previous episodes. You can see photos of the cars that we've been driving. And what else can you see there? You can also subscribe to our podcast using a bunch of buttons there. We are on, we're on every yeah. single possible podcatcher. I mean, oof, yeah, the list so that is endless. If you're, if you're subscribed to our podcast on one, because we've been doing this for a long time now, if you're subscribed to our podcast on one app that you're no longer using or you're just saving specifically for our podcast, I think you should switch to a more modern one and subscribe to us there, right? Sure. Whatever sure. makes you comfortable. <laughs> What are we talking about next week, Ben? Next week, I'm going to be talking about the Genesis GV60 that I had just mentioned uh, that we were talking about earlier. And I'm going to be driving some hybrids, the Honda Accord hybrid and the Toyota Camry hybrid. Very exciting. And uh, thank you for listening, everybody. See ya.